mean, it's really crazy just how much this has kind of taken over my whole world. Um, you know, and it's only been four years. Uh, there was a definite... Um, kind of ramp up to it though you know for the first year and a half it was just this fun little side project that Jeffrey and Joseph and I were working on in our you know sort of uh, metaphorical basements um, and then you know when we kind of started getting really big and when the internet quote-unquote discovered us uh, you know there was a period of transition we're like wow that's really great I wonder what is gonna happen next um, um, I was actually fired from my job uh, I was working as a waiter um, and, and I was like, well, I have a, exactly enough money to last for two months before I need to find another job. And, and that was when Night Vale kind of became popular. Uh, and then by the end of those two months, I was like, well, maybe I can afford to like live for another few months. But there, there was no thought that, oh, well, I can just go straight into this podcasting gig. Oh, no, gig. not at all. Fine. No, not at all. Because it was, you know, even even when the numbers were getting really big, it's still a free podcast. And, you know, we just put the, we, we put the, the content out there for everyone. Um, and then I think we tried to do a... Uh, you know, we did like a West Coast kind of mini tour, mm. and that was really great. Um, but it it wasn't, it didn't seem like something that that had longevity to it. It was just like, oh, this is like we you know we go strike while the iron is hot. We're a meme, you know. We're we're the <laughs> meme of of summer, you know. Especially given the fact that so much of it was based on Tumblr, you mm, know. And, yeah, and there's yeah. this very ethereal feeling to mm, things. Exactly, like you you know uh, you know when when you, when you start noticing that you know a lot of your fans are under the age of you know eighteen, you're like, oh well, yeah. you know they're 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 gonna at the end of summer they're gonna move on to something else, and yeah. they'll be you know uh a, you know squeeze over something else any time now and then it and then it just kept going mm. and and you know that first tour was a success and we figured well let's let's try another one and make it bigger and then by then I, I think all three of us Joseph Jeffrey and myself were kind of under the we were slowly realizing that this wasn't you know a, a meme of the summer this mm. wasn't a one-hit wonder um, and uh, yeah, then it just became our livelihood. Are, are you able to kind of pinpoint the moment when it was clear that this was a lot more than just three dudes doing a podcast? Oh, sure. Well, I was so, you know, I was unemployed yeah. and uh, and I had grand dreams of, you know, I was like, oh, I'll just take the summer off and I'll just, I don't know, I'll, I'll get my life together and figure out what I'm going to do next. Um, and I went <laughs> it down. It always works out really well. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and I was down in Florida um, and my friend Kate uh, was on Reddit and she was working on her dissertation and uh, she, she was taking a break from that and, and she was like, hey, you should come in here a minute. And she's, she's, there's a there's a subreddit with your name on it, uh, and I was like, what is what is? I don't even know what that means. Uh, let's look at it. And and people had started drawing fan art, um, and it was so funny because she, you know, I've known this girl since I was 13 years old, um, and and she's like, I don't understand why are people drawing you with your name, but it looks nothing like you. And and I was like, oh, it's oh, this must be what they think this character looks like on this free podcast that me and my friends make uh and then we kind of just google searched you know like googled uh you know cecil baldwin welcome to night Vale, and then we just like an hour of scrolling through images that were from tumblr and deviant art and like all these different places um and 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 i think that was the moment where i was like wow this is bigger than you know the 200 people on my facebook friend wall you know like th like this has gone beyond 
my friends and people who are one degree of separation from me. Was your first impulse to be a little kind of weirded out by the phenomenon of people drawing fan art of you? I, I, I think I think my friend was a little weirded out. Uh, but, but you know, I'm an actor and, and, you know, there's a part of me that's a giant ego monster. You're like, um, of course, of course people are doing of, this. Why, why haven't people sense. been doing this sooner? Yeah. Um, no, but this is definitely the first project I've ever worked on that has had such recognition mm. like this, you know. Um, I, you know, I, I, you know, sort of got my start working in classical theater and then... Then uh, uh, worked on you know sort of experimental theater here in New York. That's you know sort of part performance art and part you know traditional theater. Yeah. Um, but it's you know it's very off off Broadway. So you know ninety people see it a night, and that's you know and and you know oftentimes you know personally some of the people in the audience. But this is the first time where you know true strangers who have never who I've never met who I have no you know there's like no degrees of you know of connection mm-hmm. uh, had really been into the, something that I had made um, and it had affected them in such a way that they felt the need to you know follow me on Twitter or Instagram or draw a picture of the my character from the podcast and and they had really kind of been inspired by this podcast to to do something in the real world it's also tied to you in in a more personal way in some respects than it would be to, you know, Jeffrey or Joseph from the standpoint mm-hmm. that like, I mean, the character is to some degree you, it's, it's your name. And, mm-hmm. and when they're drawing somebody, they're actually drawing you. Oh, sure. Yeah. And I mean, you know, the, like the, the podcast has always been really uh, cagey about what characters look like. Yeah. And they're, you know, it's kind of a part of their writing style is not to get too in depth into like, oh, they were wearing this kind of outfit and their, you know, their hair is just like this. And they're, you know, like a lot of, you know, most of the characters on the show are not described like that. Mm-hmm. So it left this huge amount of interpretation for people to discover, to decide what quote unquote Cecil looks yeah. like. Um, and and of course, you know, whenever you have open-ended questions, uh, I think that was part of the fun of watching all this happen on Tumblr was watching people have, you know, these fans have these like big multi-thread conversations about what does Cecil look like and how, why is, why is my idea the right one? And is there a right one? And, you know, for months and months, even, and even now people still ask me, what does Cecil look like? And I'm like, well, what do you think Cecil looks yeah. like? Great. Then you win. Like you, you get the prize, you know, but g- giving him your, your name, did, you know, did that, does that afford you the opportunity to kind of imbue a little bit more of yourself into the character? Oh, sure. I mean, it's, you know, like the, the joy of working on a long format project like this is that you don't have to kind of walk in knowing all the answers. Um, you know, much like any pilot, you know, we started the pilot and yep. Cecil, the, the, the main narrator, didn't have a name. He didn't really have like a background as much. It was much more, here's this disembodied voice who works on a um, public radio and weird things happen to him and then over the course of that first year uh you know the writers uh sort of got into the background of who is this character and i got a chance to kind of flesh out who is this character and certainly you didn't expect early on that people would be into it to such a degree that 
there would be some sense of canon. <laughs> no, no, I don't think so. Like, I often wondered, you know, what the writers did. Like, how did they keep all these sort of ideas and plots? You know, I was like, maybe they have a flow chart somewhere in their apartment, or, you know, there's like a, a box somewhere where, where they have uh, all the lists. like CIA, like yeah, string. Yeah, exactly. And there's string, you know, like connect. The, yeah. That's that's honestly what I thought. And then I, I don't think they had anything like that. Mm. Um, and, and I think as the world grew and grew and grew, they eventually realized that continuity was going going to become an issue um and you know luckily by then somebody had made like a wiki for night vale and and honestly like all three of us use it when i'm like wait what what episode does this has this character got a voice yet has they have they spoken oh crap okay now i need to go back and look and be like did i give this character a voice and and you know kind of the fans took up the slack and really you know did a lot of that homework you were paving the roads and they were building the infrastructure underneath it yeah exactly yeah we're like wouldn't it be nice if there was a road here yeah. and people are like yes we've got a bulldozer and a dump truck and a cement mixer ready to go and we're like oh wow you're more prepared than we are the sense that i get from uh the theater work that that you've done i, I know you're involved in uh too much light makes a baby go go blind at, in i guess chicago and out here as well uh you know i never worked for okay. chicago uh i went to school in the midwest and that was where I, I like as a in college i used to road trip up to chicago and see too much light uh back in 1990 whatever through 2000 and whatever um so so it was always kind of a part of my understanding of what how, what theater could be you know this idea that you are who you are you are where you are you are doing what you're doing so you know 10 years later when i'm working with the new york company and that's where i met jeffrey craner that's where i met meg bashwinner who's the wife of joseph fink um you know this idea of i'm playing a character that is also called cecil it really didn't bother me too much because i had been used to performing in too much light yeah. as myself and you just kind of say hey this is me in this moment and i'm going to read these lines the way i would say them right now in this moment and some nights you're angry some nights you're happy and that is all correct um and 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 you know kind of working on the writing with welcome to night vale like getting these scripts from joseph and jeffrey you know sort of imbuing that into the podcast mm -hmm. so that way there's no predetermined you know, oh, this is a funny episode, or oh, this is a sad episode. I just kind of take it as it comes. Um, I mean, I do a little bit of tweaking just uh, because I, you know, I'm kind of my own director when I record. I just want to make every episode as different tonally. Is, is that even a word? Tonally? Yeah, tonality? Right. I want to make the tonality of each episode <laughs> I'll go as, tonally. Yeah, as different as possible. Uh, so sometimes I'll go back and listen to the episode that comes prior. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, that episode was really intense. So maybe this episode, there's room to be a little bit breezy and a little bit funny with it while still keeping to the plot of what Joseph and Jeffrey have written for that episode. What's interesting to me, though, is, is the, the, the contrast between having come from a theater group that is so in the moment and, and you know and with the foreknowledge that all the stuff you're creating is going to be temporary that's kind of the whole point right you're mm -hmm. you're performing for a live audience and then moving on to something like this that's not only you know permanent from the standpoint of it's online once forever. it's on the it's a yeah it's on any anything on the anything online yeah. stays online but but this is you know that that becomes exponential when people have as much invested in it sure so this is I mean, it must be a completely different experience, you know, moving from sketches to really trying to build a world. Oh, sure. Um, 
you know, but there's there's definitely roots of neo-futurism in too much light, or excuse me, in in Night Vale. Yeah. Um, but it's it's definitely not a neo-futuristic project. Um, you know, we are playing characters and we're writing about a fictional place and fictional scenarios, and you know, uh, uh, but I think you know if you look at let's say episode 100, which comes out December 15th, uh, we, we have every voice actor who's ever been on Welcome to Night Vale is going to be on that show. And if you look down the roster, I would say easily half to 75% of them are neo-futurists. Mm. Um, because there is something about working with that theater company where it, it's it's the, the uh, quickness of turnover. So you write... Uh, something for that week and then you bring in scripts on Tuesday and then you hand out the scripts and you say, okay, you're the, you play number one and you play number two, you play number three, let's give it a read and see how it goes. Great. That's how we're going to keep it. And then you learn your lines and then you're yep. performing it on stage by Friday. So there's, there's uh, the, 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 the performers who work with the Neos have this ability to get a script, make an interesting choice about performance grounded in who they are as a person. They don't have to kind of put bells and whistles on it. You don't have to like, you know, put uh, an accent or, you know, like have some deep character Stanislavski back, you know, like actorly yeah. training. You just kind of say, no, this I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm talking about a recipe. I'm, I'm, I'm a, you know, a cook on a cooking show. Mm -hmm. There's how you make this recipe. Um, and the, and, and the Neos have a tendency to just be able to spit it. Yeah. Like they'll just, they'll be like, yeah. great, this is the, this is the scenario. This is what I'm doing. Start from a place of, you know, me as a human being and then go from there. And, you know, like, uh, I, I'm always so delighted when I get to hear guest voices on the show, you know, that they've kind of gone off and record on their own, uh, because I'm always, you know, it's so delightful to see what other actors do mm -hmm. with this material. And, you know, in times when people have come over to my apartment or we've recorded together, like in the case of like Mara Wilson or, you know, people who are, you know, just truly creative, amazing people, you know, it's really fun to kick around ideas and be like, oh, okay, so what if in this moment yeah. you totally have a crush on this other, you know, and like we'll play with all these different ideas, but always kind of keeping it in this very grounded, like, like you don't have to stray too far off base, you know, uh, as a human being. Do you wish there was a more of an aspect of that, that direct collaboration? Because, you know, from the sound of it, you're still doing a large percentage of these shows just sitting kind of alone in your in your apartment with yeah. your USB microphone. Oh, sure. Well, I think that's where the live shows come in and that's really where we it's it's you know, there's kind of uh you know, as as you know, the years have gone on and like Nightville has achieved more and more success, you know, there's kind of three main aspects to the show now. There's the podcast, there's the live shows and then there's the novels. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and Joseph and Jeffrey work on the novels exclusively um and then the live show is, you know, we, we have this touring show and we do one script a year. We try to tour that script to as many locations as possible with the knowledge that we're not going to ever go back to that same place mm -hmm. with the same script. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, we're, you know, we, we're right now we're working on a script called Ghost Stories and we have toured it to, you know, kind of all over North America and Europe and we're going to hit a couple more North American cities in February 2017. And then once that's over, we're going to scrap it. Mm. And then we're going, you know, like we're going to start working on a new live show for 2017. It's like the stand-up comedian, you know, doing your hour right, exactly. and touring on that. Yeah, exactly. And that's really where... You know the 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 chance for collaborative 
yeah. uh, performance gets a chance to shine. You know, we, you know, we tour like, I would say we gig like a band, you know, uh, you know, from years, of, like in my 20s, I did all this sort of equity union theater where you're, you know, you rehearse for a month or two and then you have a tech week and, you know, then you run for a mm-hmm. month and everything is all set. And once opening night happens, you don't touch it. Mm-hmm. And that's the show. And that's the way the director wants it. This is the opposite of that. Like we will roll into a city, we'll sound check like a band, we'll have an hour off for dinner, um, our musical guests will perform, and then we'll do the show, and then we pack up and we're off to the next city the next day. Um, And what's great about that is it does allow for the performers on stage to kind of have and discover these real moments as they go. Mm. Uh, You know, like working with you know, actors like Meg Bashwinner and Dylan Marin and Symphony Sanders, you know, every time they walk out on stage, we're constantly tweaking and playing with ideas. Uh, Hal Lublin, uh, Mark Egg, I'm like all these actors that are literally some of the most giving human beings and also some of the most giving performers because, you know, there's an understanding on both ends that whatever happens, we're going to roll with it. You know, like how Lublin has literally picked me up on stage and like twirled me around the stage. That was definitely not in the script, but it made sense in the scene Mm -hmm. at the time. And I think we only did it once because at that moment it was something fun and fresh and original. And then we're like, that was the most amazing moment. And if we tried to recreate it, it would be false, you know? So, so it's just, that's where the collaborative stuff really gets exciting for me. And that's why I will literally tour welcome to night Vale until they have to like wheel me off the stage because it's so much fun to get to work with these performers every night. So, so there's a, there's a certain sense that, you know, I I mean, I would say they're writing out these scripts for, you but uh they they anticipate that you're going to take them in your own personal direction oh absolutely you know like um you know whenever we start a new script uh you know there's definitely like kind of a workshop period where the writers will come on tour with us for like a week or so um and you know i'll offer i'll offer my input as to like oh you know you have a really great one two three joke here that you know you have like a one and a two what what you know if you were to write a third line what do you think it would be or you know uh they'll give me notes about like hey don't you know the 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 emotional crux of this story is here not here you know so there's definitely like a workshop period um And then as it goes on, you know, once the language starts getting into your body and, you know, once you're kind of off book, you know, you don't have to read the script in your hand anymore, but you just kind of tell it. Um, That's when the real fun begins. Uh, So, you know, so we, we try to like rehearse as much as possible and, and be open as much as possible in the first couple of performances Mm -hmm. to trying new things and experiencing, you know, like trying out different ways of uh, telling the story and reading the script and, you know, and, and eventually once we kind of hit on something, we're like, wow, the audience really responded to that. Let's cement that. If you were an audience member, w- which do you think is a better show, beginning or end of the tour? Oh, man, uh, that's really tough because, uh, I mean, living on the road is exhausting. Yeah. And sometimes by the end, you're just like, oh, my God, I just want to go home and be in my own bed. But you know, like we're all professionals. And so, you know, every night before we walk out, I know for me, it's, you know, here's an opportunity for anywhere from a hundred to a thousand people who have never seen the show before that have to experience it as if it were the first time. Uh, And so, you know, I kind of get my, you know, artistic, 
you know chutzpah going on i'm like okay this is good this is tonight is going to be the best show ever um and then the next night is going to be the best show ever and the next night is going to be the best show ever um now having said that i think there's something really fun about coming to the beginning of a tour when we are kind of experimenting and playing and you know uh you know every joke may not be like perfectly smoothed out but you're watching something happen in real time that is kind of exciting and interesting it's a lot easier to take that the audience for granted if you don't actually interact with them you know especially again when 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 you're just sitting in your apartment and it goes out in the world but actually sort of going out i mean that must that must be a big part of the drive is like is just realizing how it's very different when you're just looking at like download numbers you know versus actually an audience full of people waiting to talk to you after a show and you know there's something you know I I, I know that you know Joseph and Jeffrey receive a lot of emails and you know an episode will come out and they kind of brace themselves for people who are like I love the episode I thought the episode was great except for this one little thing or I hated this episode so much and you know there's something very passive about that you know where somebody listens to an episode and they're like here are my notes on your writing and your performance versus being in an audience where if it, if something is funny people will laugh if something is scary people will jump if something is emotional they'll you know you can hear a pin drop and there's no faking it there's no you know going back over your notes and be like i've i've compiled a letter about how yeah. this live performance made me feel you know um it's a very immediate thing and i think that's why you know i mean honestly that's why i got into theater to begin with because it is an it's a it's a ephemeral live experience you know it doesn't it doesn't exist beyond that moment and you know like joseph and jeffrey are very smart about how they write these scripts for the live shows because they acknowledge the fact that the audience is in the house Mm -hmm. you know there's no fourth wall there's like i can see you you can see me you know if if you know there's a lot of callbacks to audience participation and audience involvement in these shows because it's real and again going back to the neo-futurist aesthetic of you're not watching a movie you're not at home you know listening to a podcast you're you're in a space with a hundred to a thousand people including performers and musicians on stage and you're all having a collective experience uh and and it's you know and i mean there's a certain degree of improvisation in these shows where, you know, we've, you know, I, in, in the three years, four years I've been touring, you know, I've had people, you know, vomit all over the audience. Like I've seen people walk out, you know, like in New Orleans, someone like left their underwear in the audience. I'm sorry, wait, like, with vomit? Oh, oh yeah. Uh, New Orleans is a really amazing, oh, sure. amazing city. And we have had some of the craziest Welcome to Nightville shows yeah. there. Uh, we were doing a show uh, at this, uh, this, sort of I think it's called the Marini Opera House uh-huh. uh, and it's this old converted church that does a lot of like um, acoustic music really conducive to people vomiting <laughs> and there is literally yeah. one way in and one way out mm-hmm. of this place and I'm in the middle of a show and I see this woman get up and, and walk down in front of the stage and walk out and then come back with like wads of paper towels and then she gets up again and she leaves and I mean this is all in full view of the hundred people that we're performing for and 
eventually, you know, she grabs this child that presumably that she's with, you know, kind of from the audience and like the two of them walk out and it's like the third time I've seen her get up. So I met, so I mentioned her and I, I didn't know what was going on. I just kept seeing this woman walking back and forth in front of the stage. And, you know, like I just sort of made, gave her a nod to her. I was just like, you know, uh, just like, oh, including this woman who, you know, seems to uh, need to get something from the bathroom. You know, just I didn't want to pick on her, but I just wanted to acknowledge the fact that this woman kept walking in front of the stage. So we go to our break and someone's like, well, you know what happened? I was like, no, I have no clue what's going on. They're like, her kid threw up all over the fifth and sixth rows and it like almost became that scene from Stand By Me where like one person throws up and then that makes another person and that makes another. So, but that's literally going on yeah. while I'm performing. Yeah. And, and it's one of those things where you can't, you know, if if this was, you know, at, you know, like a Broadway show where this was like at, you know, the Guthrie Theater or, you know, some like very respectable, you know, theater, mm-hmm. um, you know, the show goes on. Like once it's on the track, it's, you know, you're you're on for the ride. But, you know, there is a looseness and there is like a kind of a fun performance you know, aspect to this. It's it's much more like being in a concert, mm-hmm. you know, where if somebody says something crazy to the performer on stage, the musician will answer them, you know, sometimes in a positive or negative way. Um, and so it's much more like that. I've always found it really difficult to uh, sit in front of a, a computer and essentially record a monologue. Um, you know, I'm, 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 I'm much better at, at th- this is more of my format is sitting down and, and, and talking to somebody and is it when when it does come time to do that especially early on when you were sort of developing things was it hard to really channel all of that alone in a room no not yeah. at all i mean i'm an that's e- just who you are i mean i'm an actor yeah. which means that i'm an yeah. egomaniac yeah. which means that i love the sound of my own voice but, but, but obviously you know but but part but part of that experience oh you know, sure, part, sure sure is being yeah. in front of an audience no no, no absolutely no like in you know like i was saying before like working with dylan or symphony uh you know or or kevin you know when i have these scenes with people it's it's obviously tons of fun to get to bounce ideas and to bounce energy back and forth Mm -hmm. with another performer but there is something uh very satisfying about getting a eight to ten page monologue and and you know kind of my like intp brain just goes okay how am i going to figure this out how am i going to like tweak this and what's the story and how can i highlight this aspect of it and then downplay this aspect of it and you know i i like i'm I'm an actor that likes to solve problems um and do so in the most creative but most logical way Mm -hmm. um you know, I was I was watching this documentary about Brian De Palma the other day, and and it's so funny. You know, he he talks a lot about I don't know. I I had to solve this problem of you know how do I sh- how do I tell the story of a bucket of blood above Carrie White's head in the movie Carrie? And he's like, if you have a better idea, you tell me. But this is the way I figured out to do it. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of that I think for any performer or any artist of any genre. You know, you you literally just kind of put one foot in front of the other. You're like, well, I have 10 pages and I have to start in one place and I have to end in another place uh, character wise and emotionally and story wise. How do I get there? How how many goes does it take to get through eight pages? Um, Usually, I mean, what's great about the format of the show is that it is a radio broadcast. Mm -hmm. So there are segments, you know, so here's a traffic segment. Here's an uh, an advertisement. So it's already kind of broken up Mm -hmm. uh, logically. Um, 
And so, so it's so it makes it more conducive to okay. Here's the introduction, and here's the you know opening paragraph, and then here's a and now time for the weather sure. or the 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 traffic report. Yeah. Um, so that so that makes a nice easy break. I would say on average, uh, I usually have to record each segment anywhere from two to five times. Mm-hmm. Um, now because I work out of my home, um, and you know we've. You know, I, I used to live in West Harlem uh, on the first floor of a building right on Broadway. So, uh, like, street noise was crazy. And, you know, the ice cream truck would go by or, you know, the traffic helicopters cruising down, like, up and down the West Side Highway giving the weather report were audible from my from my apartment. So, you know, I, I would get in the flow and I would have to stop yeah. as soon as the siren yeah. would go by. And that's really frustrating. But if it's a quiet time and I'm like kind of in the flow, you know, usually only two to three times. Um, I mean, and then, you know, there's a lot of burping and there's a lot of, you know, door slams sure. and, you know, flubbing and you just say the wrong word and you have to kind of go back to the beginning. Did, did you, did you start to feel pieces of your personality kind of seep into the character over time oh absolutely i mean again it's like i i think you know because it does have this sort of you know bedrock in the neo-futurist aesthetic um it's it's not you know like i said it's not a neo-futuristic piece like it's definitely fictional um but it has its roots in that so i think you know kind of you start from a place of uh, well i know me and how would i react in this situation um and so i do bring a lot of myself to the character um uh, i think it's also you know important to say that you know the choices that this character makes in the show are not necessarily the ones that i would make but you know there's a part of me like i was you know this kind of a tried and true line was like you know cecil baldwin me i'm a slytherin and Cecil Palmer, the character, is a Hufflepuff. <laughs> you know, like there's, I think there's a very definite distinction <laughs> there. Um, but there's a part of me that, you know, could react to sure. any of these situations. And I, you know, as the show has gone on, I was like, oh, well, this guy lives in this really dark, dangerous place. So isn't it more interesting to have someone who's a little bit brighter and a little bit cheerier and, and a little bit more uh, uh, um, glasses half full in facing these horrible, you know, dystopian nightmares, rather than having someone whose glasses half empty, a little bit more like down and sad and defeated. And I was like, well, that that's doesn't make for a good story. Yeah. You know, it's much more interesting to hear someone who's a little bit brighter and shinier and happier um, face these terrible things yeah. and then have to go, well, that was messed up. Uh, okay, I guess we'll end the show there, you know. And then, and then, you know, as each new episode comes back, like, you know, I try to find those notes within the episode. And it also makes it much more interesting, I think, to have a character that's very relatable and very compassionate and that you want to like mm-hmm. you know to have like a this sort of you know flawed but really lovable narrator um so that way when he does do something that's messed up or he does make a wrong decision you kind of feel for him just that much more at what point did did uh, did your sexuality really enter into the picture i mean it, it's it's interesting that it's become such a rallying point for the fan base. Sure. I think it was pretty early on. I mean, like, you know, the whole story is, uh, I, I think Joseph and Jeffrey introduced the character of Carlos the Scientist in episode one. Mm-hmm. Like, the, the Carlos was this, but but I think his his role was very different. He was the foiled for Night Vale. Yeah. He was the, 
you know, Nightville's a weird, messed up place where nothing works properly. And here's this scientist who is trying to desperately catalog everything and is running around going, why don't your clocks work? I don't. But like, at the end know, of the day, you're not going to not be attractive to a Carlos, a scientist. Right, right? exactly. Can, but and, and, oh, can you resist? Yeah. And then, and, <laughs> you know, the way they describe this character, in my mind, he was kind of this like Brazilian male model, <laughs> you know, that just like. He's also a scientist. Yeah. That threw on a pair of, you know, nerd <laughs> glasses. It's like, it's like. Those, it's like those, uh, you know, the, those '80s movies. Where, yeah. You know, oh, the yeah. Woman absolutely. Is like very clearly a model, but she's yeah, got yeah, yeah. On. And then, like, you know, take their <laughs> hair down, and they're like, "Oh, look, I'm gorgeous now." Or you like, know. or like Clark Kent walking. Around. Yeah, yeah. Or it's like she's all that, you know, <laughs> like, like that. Just I like, just, I love, I love a uh, Christopher Reeve just trying to like wear a suit, right? Exactly. <laughs> Act yeah. normal. Yeah. Um, but in my mind, it was like that was the image I had in my head, and. You know, he kept talking about, like, you know, even in that first episode, I believe, like, the the, the narrator, because at this point it, he didn't have a name, the narrator just kept going, and he's beautiful, and he has this beautiful yeah. hair, and this yeah. beautiful, and oh my god, he's so gorgeous, and I was like, uh, this sounds kind of gay, y'all, like, this sounds... <laughs> Like, this is, I think, a little bit one step beyond. And I mean... This is being written by two straight dudes. Yeah, right? exactly. Um, and, you know, there there is an aspect where, you know, he could have been so gorgeous that everyone... In my mind, it was like everyone was just like, well, how could you not be attracted yeah. to that person? Um, and then as it went on, you know, it, it became obvious that, you know, I had kind of infused you know this re- this relationship this very one-sided relationship yeah. Yeah. you know with, with is it a crush is is cecil being creepy and weird mm-hmm. is this person even gay are they like do they have interactions outside of you know or is cecil just like just really perving on this like stranger who came to town and and i think joseph and jeffrey kind of picked up on that and you know and and then they kind of played with it and then by the time we started to get this popularity on tumblr and you you know, Reddit and Twitter and things like that. I, I think the characters had gone beyond, okay, this is b- more than just a crush on a straight guy. Like there might actually be something here. Yep. And, you know, if there's one thing that the internet loves to yep. do, it's take, you know, couples and, and you know, ship them. And, yeah. and so this sort of Cecil Carlos ship had it sailed, you know, as far as the internet was concerned. Did you feel like you were planting the seeds for that, or did that aspect of it take you by surprise? I mean, honestly, because we work on these episodes, or we work on the show episode by episode, yeah. like, I have, you know, I, I have no kind of knowledge of, I mean, I have an idea of where a season arc might go, but I don't know the ins and outs of it. Like, I kind of, I, I figure that out as I get these scripts and kind of make those acting decisions in the moment. Um, it just seemed like something fun to mm-hmm. do. Um, and then, you know, I kept getting scripts back that were like, oh, it sounds like, oh my gosh, I think they're actually going on a date. You know, oh, it sounds like this might be reciprocal rather than one-sided. Um, and I think that was where a lot of the internet, you know, kind of really picked up on this show because they're like, wait, here's the show about literally like the world is ending every week you know there's like tiny civilization of people that live under a bowling lane that's trying to kill everybody there's like you know a dog park that's like a vortex to like an alternate dimension and out of all this crazy business the most normal thing is the fact that two guys are in love 
that's and that's it and they talk about their relationship or Cecil talks about his relationship with Carlos and eventually when Dylan Marin started on the project then Carlos had a voice and talked about his relationship with Cecil and it's the most mundane thing in the mm-hmm. world it's hey I get off work at six I'm gonna rent a movie you pick up dinner and let's watch and like let's go like it's the most normal mundane thing and and I think that's the thing in a lot of mainstream media you know, LGBT audiences are are kind of pandered to yeah. because they're like, well, we have the main characters are straight and then they have a silly gay best friend <laughs> or, you know, maybe they have like a, a lesbian boss or, you know, but there's only one. Mm. You can, there's only one gay person allowed in the show because we don't want to alienate our straight audiences because, you know, in, in the minds of mainstream media, if you have too much of a minority, then all of a sudden the majority has to start making jumps in their head that they're like, well, wait, wait, I can't immediately identify with these characters. I'm going to change the channel. Uh, as opposed to going, here are people that are reacting and that are living their lives exactly the way you do. Maybe they look different. Maybe they sound different. Maybe they love a different sex. Maybe they, you know, like whatever the the the, the other quote unquote is. Why not just put them front and center? Mm-hmm. And and you know, I I love the fact that this has become a rallying cry for like LGBT audiences. But I also get just as excited when I find you know, cisgendered straight people that really love this show and they're like, they see, they get it that, you know, this relationship between Cecil and Carlos is the exact same as their relationship. You know, it's, it's all about who's going to do laundry, you know, who's going to, who's going to pay the bills. One of them gets a job that takes them away and they have to have a very serious conversation about long distance. These are normal relationship conversations and it doesn't matter what gender you are or what gender you love. It's, it's, it's all about the relationship. I'm not sure how old you are, but when you're dealing with um, a listenership of a certain age, it, it in a in a weird way, it makes you feel kind of that much older of another generation that 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 maybe this stuff isn't it just isn't kind of an issue to them in the same way that it, that it would be for. Oh, sure, yeah. I mean, I, I often say that you know, when I was a teenager, I would have died for something like Night Vale. Yeah. You know. Um, you know, like I Isn't like that amazing to be working on that thing. To yeah, be exactly. On that exact thing. That you know, you I, th- wish I was think. I think. Like I often say, like I I was doing a show in L.A. and uh, uh, this friend of mine who was an who like he and I toured together doing Shakespeare like like. 10 or 10 plus years ago um and you know we, we stayed friends ever since and he came to see the show and it was the first time he had seen it and he was sending me texts from his from a seat in the audience before the show and he's like oh my god these kids were me these yeah. kids were me when yeah. i was in high school yeah. and i was like i know I always feel the same thing. You know, like I was that kid who once a year on Halloween, I would get dressed up and go down and watch Rocky Horror Picture Show at the University of Tennessee, you know, student center. And that was like, you know, the kind of... Hmm. And my parents would let me go out after curfew because they knew it was something fun, uh, subversive, but not dangerous. You know, it was something that was, you know, you're with people, you're with your friends, but you're not going out and like doing crazy dangerous things. But it was something that allows young people to kind of dip their toe into trying on different expressions of who they are. Is Nightmare is Nightmare subversive, though? 
I think there's a lot of things yeah. about it that are subversive. I mean, the, it, it's it's not necessarily as pointed mm-hmm. as a lot of things are because I think the the subversiveness is kind of hidden underneath metaphor. It's I mean, it's not you know in, in the way that Rocky Horror is is shot like shocking is kind of the whole point. Or sure, like a John Waters movie like that's, yeah 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 that's yeah. kind of yeah. what like, like that's it, the yeah. whole point mm-hmm. of it in some ways. But I think I think there's a definite subversive nature to yeah. Night Vale, but it's but it's always for the common good. It's, you know, it's, um, you know, there are people in your community that look different than you don't assume about them. You know, it's mm-hmm. like the, the moral, the morality of Night Vale is very much for the positive. Um, but I think in a society like we live in now, it's sure it's subversive. You know, it, it you know, when you have, you know, people of all different you know, uh, uh, nationalities and, and genders. And, you know, you have characters that are literally like, there's a character that is the, like, uh, a, a, like a nine-year-old girl living inside the human hand of a Russian sailor, you know, like things like that, that are not exactly mainstream. Like you're not going to see that on ABC, you know, next season. Um, and, and I think that's where, you know, being an independent, venture like being a podcast you know we we don't have any um uh, uh, um, commercial, you know, we don't have any commercials. We don't have, uh, um, you know, people throwing money at us to make the show. We we do have this ability to be like, yeah, great, okay. So the, you know, the Sarah Sultan is the, um, you know, she's a character and she's a she's a rock. Yep, she's just a she's a she's a river rock, and she also uh, works on the uh, local newspaper. You know, like I, I imagine trying to pitch that in a meeting yep. to like some TV executive. And and literally watching their head explode. You also have to put things into to perspective as well. I mean, and and this is particularly important at this moment in time where you know it, you you get caught up in something and it and it feels like there's just this constant forward march of progress. You know, you know we go we go through eight years of <laughs> Barack Obama as sure. president, yeah. and it feels like everything is moving in, in the right right direction. And and you know, and we're both New York residents, mm-hmm. and we both operate in certain certain circles. And you, and it's really easy to lose sight of the fact that like that there's still a lot of these battles oh, sure. to be fought. Yeah, there's. I mean, there is. Uh, not to go back to New Orleans, but I don't know why I'm thinking of New Orleans a lot tonight. Um, but we. The, the first time we went through New Orleans, there was there was like a hiccup about uh, where we were performing and there was like some, you know, like some difficulties with one of the venues. And, you know, we're kind of in the van driving to like we're driving through like Baton Rouge headed to New Orleans. And we're like, should we even do the show? Like we, we might have to cancel and give everyone their tickets back. And literally Meg Bashwinner is like, you guys this is the audience that needs us the most. Like these are the people that are driving in two hours, three hours to come into a city center from Southern Alabama, from, you know, uh, (laughs) you know, from rural Louisiana, that this is their thing. This is the thing that it's their Rocky horror. It's their chance to get to go to the city and to be reminded that there are people that, think like them and speak like them and love like them and look like them um, and to get a chance to not only love it in a very passive way on a podcast but to get to see other people in an audience and be part of a community in a very immediate way and get to be a part of that and she was and and she was like you we like this is absolutely one of the shows we have to do like you know 
I remember when, uh, you know, all that business was going down in Indiana, mm-hmm. you know, just like, oh, you know, like gay people shouldn't play in Indiana. Like, you know, like people were pulling support and not doing concerts and You're stuff like about that. future vice president. Exactly. You know, and, you know, we were literally on our way to Indianapolis to do a show and people were just like, you shouldn't, you shouldn't play that show. And I'm like, I call bullshit on yeah. this. Yeah. I call bullshit because one, our audience is aged like 13 to 18 for the most part. And they're not the ones who are voting these, you know, th- these ridiculous politicians. in. Exactly. Like they're like, and, and if we go and do this Indiana show and a gay kid who lives, you know, in like Fort Wayne mm-hmm. has to go and see the show, they're going to then take that home and start a conversation with their parents about being gay, about being more inclusive in their thought, you know, about understanding what it is to be a part of a community and why it's important for everyone in a community to be spoken for and not just a religious majority or, you know, a a racial majority, why it's important for everyone to be taken care of by a community. And these are the conversations that are going to help change the next generation. And it it just seemed very short-sighted to me to be like, all right, Indiana, you don't like gay people, so we're not going. You know, the same for North Carolina. I mean, like, it's one of those things where, you know, when we tour, we go to these places and we try to do, you know, primary markets like New York and, and San Francisco and Seattle and Los Angeles. But it's also important to kind of get to the other places in America because podcasts don't have a limitation on where they are. You know, you can be the only listener in Montana and... Man, if there's a theater that is big enough for everybody, we'll go and we'll perform there in the hopes that like we want to bring all those different people who think that they're alone out there listening to that podcast. We want to bring them together in a theater and be like, look, look at all the people here that think similarly to you. It's so interesting, too, that something that in in a sense is so kind of archaic. I mean, it's it's a radio play. Yeah. That, that that has become like it is it is a rallying cry for young people for sure. progressive young people I mean you it know, doesn't make any sense from a certain standpoint I have no idea I really like when it comes to that I really have I, I mean I have some theories yeah. but you know it's like we're not reinventing the wheel here sure. like this is Orson Welles War of the Worlds but you're but 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 you're challenging people to maybe use their imagination in a way that they haven't been able to well that's it exactly that they don't afford themselves that opportunity and then you you know n- not only is it is it uh, you know purely uh oral medium but as you said earlier you know jeffrey and joseph are, are purposely leaving in gaps so that people sure. can fill in the dots because then then the audience has to do the heavy lifting yeah. you know i think it's it's so funny um yeah i, th- I think that's it exactly where you know we we, we are a culture obsessed with visuals you know, we, um, you know, if you like, I, my, my favorite thing when I talk to, you know, student, like young, young performers or young theater people about, about how Shakespeare used language, um, they're like, oh, I don't understand Shakespeare. It's so fast and it's so archaic. And I'm like, okay, now imagine you're from Elizabethan England and you've yep. never seen a TV before and you turn on CNN and you've got three people sure. in three different boxes all talking at once you've got a side ticker that tells us what they're talking about you've got a bottom ticker that tells us the headlines and then you've got a bottom ticker below that yeah. that has yeah. you know the dow jones like we as in 2017 can take in all that sure. visual medium yeah. but 
we can't listen to a piece of poetry and go and hear every metaphor and hear every, you know, uh, uh, alliteration. Like, but they could because that was what they were used to. It's just like we are like in in our modern day, like yep. we are visually obsessed and visually acute. Like we're, we, we can take in all this visual medium and we're very savvy at it. So it's really interesting when you make a project where you literally take all that away. Yeah. And you ask people to kind of use their brain in a different way. And you kind of go back to this sort of old-fashioned, pre-electric, you know, or not pre-electric, but like pre-visual form of storytelling. Um, you know, like the golden age of radio, where, you know, you have to kind of rely on the scene being built in your brain. And the characters are made in your brain. And you have actors portraying them but at the end of the day you decide what they look like you decide what faces they make you decide how they interact with each other you're not given that information carte blanche you you have to kind of build it for yourself and i think that's why a lot of people get very caught up in the ownership of night mm -hmm. vale that's why people you know really get protective about these characters and they really love the romance and they really love the relationships because in a sense they've done most of the work yeah you know, we've taken them 10% of the way and then the other 90% is all them. And and what it affords you, obviously, is is the ability to do things, to tell stories that you wouldn't be able to tell if you were, you know, shooting like a student film. Or something oh, sure, of course. Resources. You know, yeah. we, we taught, we uh, we had uh, Julian Coster on the show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and, and obviously he's been, he's been doing music for a long time and has been doing some form of storytelling, but he said that until podcasting came along in insofar as it actually is a new medium that he finally saw an opportunity where he could actually start telling those stories yeah i mean and julian's podcast is amazing and it, and it lives in that same sort of uh like i what i love about um you know the orbiting human circus is that it, it's it's truly an epic in yeah. its scope yeah you know where you're like one minute you're in you know, a studio where there's, you know, like people running around and there's like a cast of a hundred people. And then the next minute you're being, you know, literally the next moment you're in a restaurant on the other side of the world. And, you know, if you had to shoot that, yeah. it would be, yeah. the, the budget would be impossible. I think with Night Vale, you know, what I really love is the fact that there's uh, the ambiguity of the show. Um, if you were to shoot an episode of Night Vale where, you know, uh, there's a, you know, like there, there's this one episode about like the distant prince and he's this sort of like evil maleficent force and all of Night Vale is being herded into this canyon and they don't know why they're running, but they know they're running towards something horrible. If you were to shoot that for a, for a film or for a TV show, you would have to make very definite decisions on what does the canyon look like? How do the people know? And like all these, you'd have to literally put a finger on it because you have to cast and you have to art design and you have to direct and you have to decide where everything is going to go versus in a radio show you're just like nope the entire town of Nightvale is running through a canyon mm -hmm. towards something that they know is evil and then you kind of let the audience fill in the gaps and that's another interesting dichotomy also is is you know that there is I mean you've you've, you've described it I think you put your finger on it where there is kind of a sense of of existential hopelessness in there sure and, and and again this is another big irony is that i wouldn't say existential hope i would say yeah. existential dread okay sure but 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 the fact that uh 
that that something so built around that has become something hopeful for people. Sure. How does that work? I mean, it's it's. I mean, I think it's in the DNA of the show to be the world is terrifying and scary, and no one will make it out alive. Yeah. I mean, that's. Sure. I mean, isn't that that's the world we live in, right? So what's you know. the what's what's the moral there? So the moral is, you know, look around at the world you do live in. Yeah. And decide how you want to build that world. You know, do you want to live in a world that where you're adding fear upon fear, where you're terrified of your next door neighbor, where somebody who looks different than you is, you know, something to be shunned or feared or hated? Or do you want to live in a world where that next door neighbor that looks different than you? And of course, Nightville uses the sort of metaphor that's classic to any sci-fi horror fantasy yeah. where they're like, you know, instead of you know, putting a name on it, they're like, okay, so the president of the PTA is a glow cloud. Great. It's a sentient glow cloud that drops animals on the population rather than saying, you know, a refugee yeah. or rather than saying, you know, like a different nationality or a different race or a different gender, you know, like it uses metaphor and it's like, well, why not form a community with that other and realize that you're both working towards a common goal because neither of you are going to make it out alive death is slated for you both so why not you know like work towards yep. the greater good while you're here when you made public that you were hiv positive mm -hmm. did uh, did that feel like you were kind of coming out again oh absolutely i mean it's you know it's exactly that it's you know it's something that you know, I'd been living with for 10 years and, you know, I told my parents because I didn't, you know, I wanted to kind of, I, I, I told like my parents and like a few very close friends, uh, mostly because I had to wrap my brain around it. And then after, you know, yeah. a little while of, you know, living in New York and getting treatment and being like, oh, okay, this is not, you know, the, the horrible, terrible thing that, you know, it once was, yeah. um, and then once I kind of got comfortable with it, you know, I told more people and, but it always seemed very much like, like I always felt like I was living in that sort of like closeted, like studio system of Hollywood and like the, the 50, like kind of like a rock Hudson, you know, where he's like throwing wild parties and there's like naked dudes, yeah, yeah, yeah. like, you know, like these wild Bacchanalian parties yeah. at his like LA house. But as far as like anybody outside of Hollywood yeah. knew, he was like a total straight upstanding citizen. And I kind of felt like that a little bit after a while. And, you know, um, obviously like 2016 was kind of a bitch for everybody. Yeah. And, you know, like the, 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 or the pulse shooting in Orlando happened and you know like I mean the gay community was wrecked like so much has happened that it that I had forgotten that that happened in the yeah, same year. Yeah, like it's, yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, because so much has happened yeah. since this summer that you're just like, oh, fuck, I forgot I can't that, you know. Yeah. That, yeah. Um, but it was, I, I, I think, I, I, you know, I'd kind of been contemplating talking about it, but I didn't have the words to say it. And it just seemed disingenuous to be like, I'm going to take out a press release because everyone should. And I'm just, I was like, yeah. well, who, who cares? Like, yeah. this is, this is one, it's, it just is, it's none of their business. It's like, this is a conversation between me and people I love and people who are close to me. But then the more I thought about it, I was like, well, you know, there, there is a certain degree of amplification when you have when you are a performer and you are working on a show that is popular you know you have people that are interested in your life you know everything from you know the sort of instagram twitter 
voyeur aspect of our society these days is I want to know what X celebrity is eating for breakfast. I want to know what shoes they're wearing. I want to know where they're going. I want to know what restaurants they go to. And I know what kind of venereal disease. I, well, <laughs> I mean, that's the thing is, you yeah. know, like, why not extend that yeah. beyond, you know, this sort of, you know, uh, sort of celebrity aspect into something that does good. And I mean, there yeah. are tons of celebrities that are amazing at it. And and I found myself following more of those people on Twitter, people like Rose McGowan, who's like, she's like, I'm an actor and I have this platform because I am an actor. And you know what? I'm going to fight for women's rights as hard as I can. And I like started finding more and more of these celebrities that I was like, damn, if they can do it, like I'm, I'm like nothing compared to them. Like I'm a fucking podcast actor being gay was just kind of a, a part of your personality you didn't feel like you were necessarily like right fighting for civil rights right exactly like like the the fight you know like the 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 fight to come out of the closet as gay was you know now is different than it was when i was 17 yeah. years old and it's different when i was 17 years old than when i was born uh you know and and literally when i started thinking more and more and more about coming out quote unquote as hiv positive I literally kept thinking about Harvey Milk and thinking about that rallying cry of the, the 70s of come out, come out wherever you are. Mm -hmm. Because in the 70s or the late 60s, 70s, the, the biggest, most radical act you could do was just saying I'm gay because that was huge. Like that, like we're talking Stonewall generation, yeah. like that was the biggest, most subversive thing you could do. And a, and a very definite risk to your exactly. self. You, would, you had the potential to be fired. You had the potential to be beat up. You yeah. had the potential to not get an apartment. You had the potential to not have a family or a house or, you know, like all these things that we take for granted. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that was 30 plus years ago. And, and you know, when I was a teenager coming out of the closet, um, there were definitely a lot of dangers but it wasn't this sort of life altering, you know, like or life endangering yeah. act. Yeah. Uh, and then I think, you know, like, you know, people that are teenagers now have a very different understanding of what the uh, HIV AIDS crisis is, mm -hmm. you know, in, in a lot of ways. uh you know, uh, a lot of money was thrown at the HIV AIDS research in the 90s because, you know, the, the gay community was, just, I mean, the world community was was devastated. Like we lost an entire generation yep. of people. And and so there was a huge reaction to that, you know. Um, and like, for instance, on World AIDS Day, I was in North Carolina and we, we screened the film, The Last One. And, you know, it's it's crazy to watch what it was like to take the AIDS quilt around, you know, just from the early 80s to the late 80s or, or the, the, the 80s to the 90s, you know, when, you know, when you have like, you know, 20 people working out of a basement, you know, making, you know, pieces of this quilt for people who they knew versus like having, you know, then President Clinton and, you know, like First Lady Hillary Rodham Clinton, you know, looking at the AIDS quilt. Like, like yeah. just that jump in 10 years yeah. was astounding. From, from Reagan to Clinton. Exactly, yeah. from Reagan to Clinton. Um, you know, and, and, and I think a lot of young people, i.e. the, you know, the, you know, the sort of 14 to 25 demographic that Night Vale hits really hard, have a very 
uh, this this idea that like HIV and AIDS was something that's relegated to the 90s hmm. and it's red ribbons and it was oh didn't we already work on that didn't we already solve that yeah you know and 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 it seemed like because of the unique place that I'm in where I do have this sort of very small platform of celebrity being a podcast actor and also because this is something that's near and dear to my heart you know and I get the chance to meet a lot of people who are HIV positive mm -hmm. and talk to them and share their stories and share their lives. You know, it just seemed like something that it just seemed natural. Um, and I wanted to do it in a very organic way. I didn't want to do the whole like, I'm going to take out a press release and everyone should listen to me because this is my sad story. So I just tweeted it. I, you know, like in the wake of Orlando, I was just, yeah. you know, like literally just sort of dropped it in and was just like, hey, um, yeah, I'm uh, gay and I like to smoke weed and I'm HIV positive and this is my life. Okay, bye. You know, and it just seemed like the most natural way to do it. Did it impact your relationship with the, with the, with the audience at all? I don't think so. Um, and I, I mean, for, you know, obviously for better or for worse. I mean, obviously, like, there must have been. I mean, I definitely, like, noticed after that, you know, like, Dylan, Marin, and I did an interview uh, for Seriously TV about it and just talking about, you know, some of the, the, the preconceived notions of what yeah. people with HIV are. And, you know, I noticed, like, that after that, like, a, you know, more, a couple of people did come up. They're like, wow, I really saw what you said. It was so brave. And I'm like cool thanks yeah. you know that's that's awesome thank you for saying that um but again it's like a lot of times those people that are saying it are very young and you know in my mind it's taking something that is abstract and putting a very specific tangible hmm. face to it you know um you know talking to an 18 year old you know who lives in Fort Wayne Indiana uh and and having them say you know, oh, I never knew anybody who was HIV positive yeah. and going, well, now you do. Or you probably did. <laughs> or, you yeah, or, know you know, it. maybe you didn't know it at the time. And I <laughs> yeah. think, and it's, and it's, you know, it's not something that I want to, you know, like, it, it's it's something that's a part of my life and, you know, in the same way that I love horror movies and yeah. the same way that I love, you know, animation and, you know, things like that. And, um, you know, I think it's important and it's, and it's something that intrigues me and interests me. But, it is just, uh, it's another part of me and it's another part of what I want, what I like to talk about. How much of, of a part of your life is it? I mean, obviously, you know, there's precautions that you have to take. For oh, sure. Well, I mean, there's, well, I mean, you know, in Trump's America, I'm really wondering uh, just how much medication is going to cost and how much health care is going to cost. I, you know, it's, and... I, I'm, 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 I'm lucky in that I'm, I'm, I've had pretty good health in my life. Sure. My sister has a, you know, a chronic condition. And oh, yeah, yeah sitting there on election night and you know and just like being depressed about yeah. everything and then getting a text from her and saying yeah. like i just i don't know yeah exactly and that's like. the thing is that it's you know it is something that all of a sudden becomes very real like yeah. again it goes from a very kind of you're like oh trump is this black cloud yeah. above our country to oh crap yeah. how am i going to afford medication that it retails at two thousand dollars a day you know, like, what is the reality of that? Like, what is, you know, what what structures are in place? And wait, wait, if they're yeah. rolling back, you know, like healthcare in, in America? Well, no, like, like all of a sudden things become, start to become very real. Um, I mean, for me, uh, the times when I think about HIV the most are, um, it keeps me tethered to a single place. Um, 
Like, I don't have the luxury of being able to be like, mm, you know what, I'm going to go live in France for three months. Bye. Because I have to kind of like once a month have a touchstone to go pick up medication that I need to stay healthy. Um, like, I remember this is the dumbest thing ever, but I remember I was watching the TV show Lost uh -huh. and I was like, my friends and I were like, how would you survive on the island? And I was like, I don't mm, think I would yeah. because I have a medical condition yeah. that means that I can't just live on a desert island indefinitely. Although I wrote that off because I was like, oh, the island will definitely keep me healthy. But also so, if, you know, if the, if the worst thing about having HIV is that you can't live on a desert island, yeah. not the end of the world. Sure. Uh, but it, but it's, you know, like abstract things like yeah. that. That's like, I don't have the sort of freedom of mobility but th that I but would things love. that The things that, you know, hypotheticals things that when you confront them it, it brings it into sharply. sure like it, it reminds you yeah. that um things i mean in a very abstract way it you start thinking about your health in general like i found out when i was 26 25 i think and you know when you're 25 the majority of people don't think about their own death yeah like those are the th those are the years when you're like I'm indestructible. Yeah. I'm gonna drink tequila till six o'clock in sure. the morning, you know. And then all of a sudden, I had to start thinking about oh, I'm not indestructible. Um, I, I I I don't have to plan my death like fortunately, but I do have to start thinking about my life and my own mortality in a very real, tangible way. Um, and that was hard, uh, just because it's hard for any young person to think about the end when you're at the beginning um and so that was something and you know like i started paying more attention to going to the dentist and like what i was eating and my diet and doing yoga and all that sort of stuff I'm not saying i've succeeded at those things but i definitely started <laughs> becoming more aware yeah. of them um things like uh you know, like the dating scene is always difficult. And, yeah. you know, even in the 10 years that I've been HIV positive, I've noticed a definite education in the gay community of, you know, there would be people 10 years ago who'd be like, hey, I'm HIV positive. And they're like, oh, we can never date. And I was like, oh, well, that's abrupt. To now people are a little bit more willing to be like, I don't really know that much about HIV, but I'm at least yeah. willing to learn or I'm willing to but, listen. But, but it's something, but it's definitely something that's been very much on the mind of the gay community. I think that's the thing is like, I think, uh, you know, like medicine and finances uh, kind of got to a point in the 90s where they're like, okay, we've at least achieved some sort of stasis. You know, we're like, we can, people are taking this ridiculous regimen of pills that are making them okay, but not amazing. Like they're not, there's there's definitely no cure but you know like if you take these 30 pills a day and oh yeah your liver will probably self-destruct but you won't die tomorrow yeah. and then i think that was enough you know like mm -hmm. like i, I think the it's gay it's not an immediate death sentence yeah, yeah like the gay community just got to a point where they were tired of being sad as well <laughs> like i mean yeah you know they they just like they had gone through 20 years of like non-stop you know funerals and then once they got to a point where they're like okay we've achieved stasis they're like oh okay let's at least shelve that issue yeah. and then start working on things like gay marriage or you know yeah. like more pressing you know kind of respectable gay issues um and that doesn't mean that hiv and aids have gone away it just means that we have found a way to put it into a box um and and unfortunately 
that box is run by pharmaceutical companies. It's run by people who have tons and tons of money. Martin Sorelli. Yeah, yeah. Like it's run by people who, uh, you know, have all the resources. Yeah. And and sure, I mean, I don't, I don't want to like vilify everyone who works in the medical mm -hmm. profession or in the pharmaceutical profession because there are ways to get medicine and to make it affordable. But here's the thing. A lot of those are only available or only readily available to people who are comfortable middle class and uh, white and yeah. cisgendered and, you know, and male. Um, and if you are not those things, it becomes much more difficult to get your hands on this literally life-saving medication. And I think that's where, you know, the forefront of HIV and AIDS work is, in, is heading in the future is not just globally like once you start thinking globally then it's a whole other ball game but like just in america if you think about the people that live in disenfranchised uh areas people of color people who are transgender people who you know uh, are uh socioeconomically more likely to um need assistance and to need this this kind of help from the community at large that's where we're at right now um, the the white upper middle class gays yeah. they're they you know they're doing okay you know they're they're doing all right um, and now it's time to kind of realize oh well that's not the only like the G's and the LGBTs are not the only people that need this so do you have an have enough of a platform now or are, are you you know obviously the people that you've been speaking to through the podcast are very much your people, right? Sure. <laughs> These are your like fellow weirdos. Yeah. Uh, but now that, now that, you know, now that you've been sort of talking around this, this thing, now that you've kind of confronted it, now that you know that like invariably every time you do a, have a conversation or interview somebody that it's going to come up oh, with sure. at some point, um, ha have you been giving the platform that you feel like you're actually able to sort of make some kind of a, a positive change i mean i i mean just by talking about it i think yep. you're making a positive change just by again come out come out wherever you are mm -hmm. like in the words of harvey milk like you, just by saying its name yeah you are then opening a conversation mm -hmm. um i'm not saying i have answers i i you know i mean there this is a huge multifaceted issue sure. that is you and know, it affecting just got America scary in ways that it hadn't been scary right. Exactly, and and you know, and the other part of what's interesting about where I'm at personally in my life is because I do tour the country a lot. I you know I get a chance to go around and see places that are not New York and L.A. and San Francisco. You know, I, I there, there's a whole lot of America in between, yeah. and you know. And myself and the Nightfall crew, we have crisscrossed this country quite a few times. And I've been doing it since I was 22 and I did my first national tour. Like, I've been doing this for a while. Um, and with the recent political climate, I think we're going to have to find a return to grassroots organization right. and to community organization. Um, it's the kind of thing where, you know, y you really do have to not, you can't, You've got to you've got to really think globally, but act locally. You know, uh, to borrow a phrase from my hippie brothers, mm -hmm. you know, and sisters. Like you, you really have to 
like get your hands dirty in your community. You know, you have does your community have a healthcare center? You know, does it uh, cater to LGBT people? Do they if you go into a healthcare center and you're transgender and you say you uh, your pronouns are uh, him and he, do they understand what that means? Do they have medication for you? Do they do they understand that if you're gay and you go into a healthcare center is HIV testing even a part of their initial, you know, like physical? Um, are they going to judge you for having sex with uh, uh, someone of the same? Like, I mean, these are the things like we got to start with the basics. Yeah. And, you know, living in New York and, you know, being in a major city like New York or Chicago or L.A. or San Francisco or Seattle, like mm -hmm. there's a lot of that around. But it's, you know going to secondary tertiary uh cities uh like you really have to kind of get your hands dirty and get into the community and be like okay what if you're homeless and you have hiv and you don't have a place to live never mind like trying to stay stocked up on your medication you know like what are the challenges involved with that and what you know what work does it take on the ground to get that done and you know there's only so many medical professionals you know, who are literally working to save lives. Like, what, it, what does it mean to volunteer at one of these places? What does it mean to, you know, to go to a nightclub and to hand out yeah. flyers for rapid HIV testing or rapid STI testing? Like, like these are easy um, things that can be done within your own community, but you have to get off your couch and do them. Have you been on tour since you... I don't know. Yeah. Right word, but. I'm trying to think. Uh, yeah, I think I w uh, we, we went to Europe. We did okay. 15 cities around Europe. Um, I, I'm, j I'm just, you know, because obviously the going out to one of these shows, uh, again, it affords you that opportunity to interact with these people face to face. Sure, sure. Fans face to face in a, in a way that you weren't able to before. And I'm wondering that now, now that this, you know, you've revealed this other part of yourself, whether it's given you an opportunity to have these conversations with fans, you know, one-on-one -on -one with sure. people in a way that maybe before somebody might've kind of like come out to you. Is this another level of that? Oh, sure. I mean, it's difficult because I'm not a medical professional. Sure. And a lot of times, you know, on, on Facebook and Twitter, I, I have noticed people kind of asking me questions. I'm like, listen, I'm, <laughs> I am not a doctor. I cannot advise you yeah. on this. I would, however, recommend that you go see a doctor sure. or listen to what they have to say. Uh, so there's that aspect of it. Um, I mean, I, I in a very, like, passive sort of way, I guess. I mean... Yeah. You know, like it's it's always nice to go to a bar after a show, and if you're in like a queer bar, to have somebody buy you a drink, mm -hmm. and you know, and like just kind of say, "Hey, thanks for the work that you're doing," yeah. and whether that work is in the HIV world, whether that work is playing a gay character, whether that work is just like, "I think you're a great actor," yeah. like I'll take it, yeah. like, and that's that's enough. Um, that's really the most of you know like what I've seen and really that's it is just like you know as someone who is you know an independent actor and I don't know where my next job is coming from and you know I'm like oh god I hope I can afford my rent you know um, like that to me is the greatest gesture of I like what you're doing keep doing it at the end of the day you're really just in it for the free drinks oh my god absolutely
There you go. That was Cecil Baldwin. Uh, that, uh, that was actually recorded last week, and that was a rare, super speedy turnaround for the program. Uh, wanted to get it out in the world as a semi-belated commemoration of the fact that last week was the 100th episode of Welcome to Night Vale. Um, thanks so much to Cecil for taking the time to do that. Thanks to, uh, to Merrill for, for suggesting that we, we do that interview around the 100th episode and for uh, setting up that conversation. Um, really, just really, really fantastic talk with him. And um, I, I've just, I've been completely fascinated by the phenomenon that is Welcome to Night Vale. I, I've been doing podcasting for, <laughs> for a long time. I think like 10, 10 or so years, if that's even possible. I've only been doing RIL for about three or four now, which not all that long in the grand scheme of things. But uh, I... I just have never, I've never seen a phenomenon come along that was anything, anything near Welcome to Night Vale. Obviously, there have been a lot of, you know, popular podcasts. Uh, a lot of NPR shows have, have done really well in the formats and a lot of programs and a big podcasting networks. Uh, and then, you know, every, every once in a while you'll get uh, something like a serial, but just nothing quite uh, there's no precedent for the, the kind of the creativity and the the community as, that has built up around the show. I, I I actually remember the first time that I heard about Welcome to the Night Vale. It was uh, a few years ago. Now I was at South by Southwest. Um, it's a weird, <laughs> it's a weird visceral memory, but I we were staying at a hotel way outside of Austin, and I was walking around reading Twitter. Um, I remember where I was because I saw the the, the Target bulldog. <laughs> Somebody was was taking the, uh, the 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 dog for a walk with a little uh, Target around his eye, and I remember reading Twitter uh, and seeing John Darniel from the Mountain Goats mentioned something about this about this show, and then just all of a sudden it was popping up everywhere. It was at the top of iTunes and just uh, had, had become a, a complete phenomenon, you know. Uh, like two or so years ago I was at uh, New York Comic Con and they were doing a panel and there was just a, a line around the block and all of these people who had worn they were dressing up for a podcast which again just just there's no there's no precedent for that as far as I can tell in this medium um, really really fantastic really really unique and, and I think exactly the sort of thing that, that we need I know it's a tough time it's a scary time it's things seem very divisive so to have something like this come along organically and and to have people just completely uh, rally around it is 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 a wonderful thing um and obviously uh, cecil has been a part of that a big part of that um you know joseph and 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 jeffrey the 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 creators of the program uh, jeffrey was was on the show a while ago i i highly recommend if you like the program going back and listening to that we had a really wonderful conversation about uh, art bell and coast to coast and just weird am overnight radio um all of the the voice cast um we had uh, Mar-, Mar wilson on some time ago as well uh, just a lot of really creative people all coming together and, and producing a, a really wonderful and, and and very singular thing so uh thanks so much to cecil for for doing that and uh again thanks to, to meryl for suggesting and setting that up as well um if you uh if you like the program please uh please subscribe to us on itunes 
uh, rate us over there as well. If you got a little bit of cash, consider um, sending a, a bit of money our way over on Patreon. Uh, if you got any feedback, it's rolcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Tumblr. That's rolcast.tumblr.com. That is your first and best place to get all of your RIYL related information. Like us on Facebook. And I think that's about all I got for this week. So stick around because we will be back just about this time next week with another episode of RIYL. <laughs>